0: God's known by many names in Scripture. He's called the Great I Am in Exodus 3 and verse 14. The Holy God in Isaiah 5 and verse 16. God Most High in Genesis 14 and verse 18. He's called the Holy God in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 16. The Lord of Peace, Judges 6. And verse 24, and there's a host of other attributes that we could use based on Scripture to describe to us who God is. But above all of those things, the attribute of God that puts him in stark contrast to our adversary that we studied about this morning is that he is, according to Isaiah 65 and verse 16, a God of truth. The God of Scripture is described as a God who not only is truth. He doesn't just simply tell us the truth, but truth emanates from who he is. Think about passages in the Bible that tell us not only that God does not lie, but that God can't lie. Oh, I'm not seeing it on the screen. That's why I advanced it. Sorry. Y'all are cheating, getting all all the points already. (laughs) Passages in the Bible tell us not only that God doesn't lie, but that he can't lie. Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. Titus 1 in verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God who can't lie promised before the world even began. Or Numbers 23 in verse 19, God's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Truth emanates from who God is. God is a God of truth. But it is also, in addition to that, God doesn't simply want us to believe in him, but God wants us to believe on him. That means accept the truths that he gives us. It said Jesus was believed on in the world and then received up into glory. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. And so, while wow, like we talked about this morning, there are lies that the devil wants us to believe so that our souls may be compromised and our garments soiled. There are truths that God wants us to accept so that we can soar to greater heights than we ever had before. Let me ask you a question. Would you ever call God a liar? Would you think to yourself that God is mistaken about something he said about himself or something he says to you about you in his word? We would obviously say there's no way I would ever accuse God of being capable of lying to me. And yet sometimes we read things in scripture and we wrestle with them. We struggle to accept them and believe them as being true. And to the degree that we do that, we jeopardize God's attribute of being full of truth And we jeopardize him as being a God of truth. And so we need to accept what he gives us tonight. And you already saw one of them on the slide above us. But what's going to happen tonight is we're going to look at truths that God wants us to accept. Now, there's a shortcut way that we could do this. We could just not preach the sermon and say, here's all the truth God wants us to accept. All 66 books, 1189 chapters, 31,102 verses, all of this. God says, this is the truth I want you to have. I want you to accept it and to know it. But there's also the fact that we deny certain truths in our lives and struggle to accept those truths. And I want to highlight seven of them this evening that we all need to embrace and accept in light of what God tells us about himself. But more than just a list of seven things that are true about God and that God wants us to accept about him. I hope that these seven truths that God wants every one of us to accept serve as kind of a mantra of life, a sort of rule of life that on days when you want to doubt these truths about God and about what God says about you, that maybe you write these out, print these out and remind yourself that I've got to accept these truths if I'm going to be God's person, even when it's hard for me to believe because God's right. Here's the first one, as you already saw. Number one. God likes you. You know, most Christians don't have any problem at all with believing that God loves them. John 3:16 says, for God so loved, you probably know the rest, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And it's true, the Bible tells us that God loves us and he showers that love on us through the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's also true that the Bible teaches us that God likes us. Now you're not gonna find a passage with that exact terminology, but you will find God describing his relationship to toward us in other ways that you couldn't define any other way except to say that God really does like people he likes you and he likes me it's important that we grasp this truth somebody says I don't need this all I need to know is that God loves me but maybe you're one of these people I've heard people say this before you know I love this person because they're in my family but that's just about it I don't really like them or care for them I love them because I have to and maybe we view God that way sometimes We were sinners, defiled in our transgressions. Jesus came and died on our behalf, and now God has no choice but to accept us. And so he loves us based on the sacrifice of Jesus. But there's really no inherent value in us that would make God care about us. And the Bible denies that over and over again by telling us God not only loves us, but he likes us. Go to Psalm 18 and notice what David says. This is a long psalm. And the heading says, David wrote these words on the day when God delivered him from all of his enemies and even from the hand of Saul. And in Psalm 18 and verse 19, David says, he brought me into a broad place and he rescued me because he delights in me. In Psalm 41 and verse 11 and in Psalm 44 and verse 30 and verse 3, the psalmist says one of the proofs that God cares about me and delights in me is that he will not hand me over into the hands of my enemies. One of the truths that God wants us to accept is that God likes you and he likes me. Now, this is important because we sometimes view love as obligation. I mean, you have to love. If it's love, whatever you do for this person is because you're obligated to do so. But like signifies more of a choice. When you say you like cheesecake or hunting or sports or decorating or fishing, when you say you like something, what you're saying is if you could choose, If you had an option to do one thing over the other or if you could engage in one practice over another, you would always choose this one thing. And what the Bible's telling us when it says God delights in us is saying that God chose us. He takes pleasure in us and he wouldn't have it any other way. But there's more. How do you know for sure that God likes us? Well, there are things that the Bible tells us God does for us that he only does because there's this deep adoration for us. First Peter five and verse seven says cast all of your anxieties or cares on God. Because he cares about you. Matthew 5 and verse 45 says, God sends his reign on the just as well as the unjust. Friends and enemies alike. Why does God do that? Because he cares about each and every one of us. The Bible teaches that God loves us, yes, but he also likes us. He's not ashamed to align with us and call us his brothers and sisters, even though we're human and frail. Hebrews 2 and verse 11, he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. And it's because God cares about us. In fact, in two passages in the Old Testament, Zechariah 2 and verse 8 and Psalm 17 and verse 8, God calls his people the apple of his eye, the pupil or the most sensitive part of his eye, because he cares about who we are. And again, you might think to yourself, I already know God loves me and that's enough for me. I'm not really interested in the light. But until we realize God likes us and loves us, we won't appreciate his love as much as we should. The Bible says he does. Think about children that live in a home where they say, you know what? I know my parents love me, but that's what parents are supposed to do. But they're terrified to death to ever disappoint their parents because they're really not sure their parents like them. They think to themselves, I'm loved by my parents because of who I am and what I do. But if I ever failed them, if I ever stepped out of the bounds, then maybe I wouldn't be accepted. Or what about a spouse that says my spouse loves me? I know that. But every night he pillows his head, she pillows her head thinking this person loves me but I'm really not sure they like me. I mean, it seems like they're annoyed about me or embarrassed of me. They tolerate me. They put up with me. But like, now that's different. And you know, some people think that about God. Surely God loves us. He sent Jesus to die for our sins. But like, that signifies choice and intimacy. And the Bible says, oh, God loves you. That's great. But God likes you too. And that's amazing. What is man? That you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him. Psalm 8 and verse 3, the object of his affections. That's who God is. And that's how God views himself toward us. Consider the cross. Do you know what the cross says about God toward us? Romans 5 and verse 8 says, When we were yet without strength, God commended his love toward us and that Christ died for us. In the cross, Jesus was not earning God's love for us. It wasn't the manifestation of God's love in the cross where God says, okay, now I have permission to love you. The cross was the fruit of his love. Jesus was saying to you and me in the cross, That I would rather die than live without you because he loves us that much. No man takes my life for me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and take it up again. John 10 and verse 18. Why would he do that? Because he cares about us. You don't struggle with this when it comes to Jesus. He's baptized in the river of Jordan in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. He rises from the waters of baptism. Heaven opens up, and God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm satisfied. Matthew 3 17. And your heart doesn't reject that truth. You just accept it. But maybe you and I mute the voice of heaven toward ourselves when we're baptized. Because the Bible says, essentially, God says the very same thing about you and me when we're baptized. We're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put them on. And God says, I love you. But it's also true that God likes us as his people and he cares about us. And we've got to accept that truth as well. Here's number two. Forgiveness is for real. God wants us to accept the truth that forgiveness is for real. Now, one of the challenges, and I've mentioned this before in different contexts, of memorizing Bible verses is that if you start memorizing Scripture, especially famous phrases, bumper sticker verses, you might remember one part of the verse and forget the back half. Or you might remember the whole verse itself, but forget the verses that surround it. I think this happens with Romans 6.23. You know Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Fill in the blank. Death. And we know that so well. But do we know the rest of it? Because Romans 623, part A, that we just quoted is not Paul's punchline. Romans 623 says the wages of sin is death, comma, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're so acquainted with our failure that we often forget, hey, there's more to the story. And that's the point. Paul says where sin abounds, grace did much more abound, sin reigned through death, but through grace there's everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5:20 and verse 21. I think a similar thing happens in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. And we know Romans 3.23, but what about verse 24? Where Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we've been given everlasting life. One of the truths that God wants us to accept about Himself toward us is that forgiveness is for real. It's for real the day you get baptized. Acts 2 and verse 38 says baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It's true every day as you walk in the light, 1 John 1 and verse 7. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. When God says, I will remember your sins no more, and I'll be merciful to your unrighteousness, Hebrews 8 and verse 12, he means exactly what he says, and he wants us to accept it and receive it. And maybe we have some trouble accepting those statements just on the surface. God says, okay, I'll do you one better. I'll give you examples. And the Bible is filled with examples of other people who God has forgiven, so that when we struggle to accept this truth, he says, well, why don't you just lay your life right down next to theirs and see that if I forgave them, I'll forgive you. And we read those. But maybe I'm the only one that struggles with this. Sometimes I've heard so many sermons on people like David. And they say, hey, David sinned with David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. God forgave David and God will forgive you. But I read passages like that and sometimes I struggle to accept it. I realize David failed, but pretty much everything else the Bible tells me about David is David was a pretty good guy. Somebody says, but yeah, there's Saul of Tarsus. And before Saul was a Christian, well, he persecuted Christians. He killed a lot of people. He did terrible things. But once Saul becomes a Christian and becomes Paul, his life is pretty, pretty good after that. He lives and does just about everything God wants him to do. And though we should learn from both David and Paul, sometimes we struggle to equate the forgiveness they receive with what God wants to give to us. And so God says there are also other lesser known accounts of my forgiveness. And I want you to grow from these as well. Turn your Bible to Second Chronicles 33. Don't be ashamed. If you've got to go to the table of contents to find Second Chronicles, just rock on, find it. 2 Chronicles 33, we read about a man by the name of Manasseh. Now, his life also is described in 2 Kings 21, 1 through 9, and there we learn he's terrible. But 2 Chronicles 33 is not only a recounting of his reign, it's one of the greatest biblical nuggets of forgiveness in all the Bible. 2 Chronicles 33 in verse 1 says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Reigned a long time as king. Verse 2 says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Listen, that's typical. A lot of kings did evil in the sight of the Lord in both the northern kingdom and the southern. But with Manasseh, there's more. Verses three down through verse five says his dad was Hezekiah and his dad had gone in and engaged in this great religious reform, removed all of these terrible idolatrous practices. Manasseh comes to the throne and adds all of them back in. But that's not even the worst of it. Verse six says he burned his own children and sacrificed to God in fire, made them pass through the fire. He sought religious guidance from fortune tellers and from soothsayers. He built altars to false gods, verses seven down through verse nine. In fact, in verse nine, it says he did more evil than all of the nations that God drove out before Israel. I mean, he was the absolute worst. And when God tried to speak to him about it, hey, Manasseh, change your ways. Verse 10, he and all of the people, they wouldn't listen. Verse 11, he finally gets what's coming to him. Enough is enough. And God, with chains and cords, takes him to Babylon. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 11. And when he finally is getting what he deserves for being rebellious, disobedient, and wicked, verse 12 says, in his distress, he cried to the Lord. And God heard him and entreated him and gave him a second chance and forgave him. That is scandalous to consider. This man was wicked, heinous, ungodly, corrupt, practiced child sacrifice. And when he finally is getting exactly what he deserves and prays the God and begs for pardon, God says, I'll forgive you. Now, what we need to ask ourselves is why on earth is a story like that in the Bible? Because God's saying to you and me, forgiveness is for real. I even I am he who blot out your transgressions for my own name's sake. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. The next time we get in a rut about our own sins, God says, hey, remember Manasseh. I know what you've done. I know you've done terrible things. Manasseh did, too. And when he asked for my forgiveness, I gave it to him. God will remember your sins before you do, because when God has forgiven it, he really has forgotten it. Isaiah 38 and verse 17. I cast your sins behind my back. Isaiah 61 in verse three, he says, I give you beauty for ashes. The famous Dutch writer Cory Tim Boom says when God casts your sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 719, he immediately goes out and puts up a sign. No fishing. He won't even allow you to go in and dig out your own sin. When he says it's forgiven, he really does mean it. And we need to accept this truth. God's forgiveness is for real. We may say intellectually we believe it, but sometimes we struggle. And one of the truths God wants us to accept about his word and about his relationship toward us is that he forgives. You know, sometimes people make mistakes. I'm talking about legal mistakes. And they may have to go to prison and pay their debt to society. But the way this works, or it's supposed to work at least, is when you're released, after you've done what you're supposed to do, probation, parole, whatever it is, you've got a new lease on life. All debts are forgiven, and you can go and live as a free man or a free woman, or at least that's how it's supposed to work in part. But when you try to go and get a job, or you fill out some paper, they're going to ask you this question. Hey, have you ever been arrested, ever been convicted, ever been charged with a crime? And if you have, you know what you've got to put on the paper. But there's one remedy that you could engage in to kind of circumvent that process, and that is to get your record expunged. Now, they won't give you, the government, the court system won't give you expungement unless you ask for it, petition and pay money. But if you do, they'll wipe your record clean. And when people run your background check, the things you've done, they'll never come up. God does not offer us the kind of forgiveness that when it's all said and done, we've still got to check a box. Yes, I'm a sinner. I've done this. Yes, I've done this kind of thing. God's saying, I want you to accept this truth. Forgiveness, it is for real. Paul told the Corinthians, don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? neither thieves nor covetous, extortioners, homosexuals, revilers, abusers of themselves with mankind. Such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God says, I've forgiven you of all those things. And it's about time you accepted. One of the truths God wants us to accept about ourselves in light of his word is that when he says he forgives, he forgives all the way. Here's number three. One of the truths we need to accept is that a godly life is possible. 1 John 5 and verse 3, John says this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome this idea of burdensome, the word that John uses in 1 John 5 and verse 3, it's a word that means something that would either be too heavy or too difficult to carry. And the way John uses it in 1 John 5 and verse 3 is to say the commandments of God are not like that. God is not asking you and me to do things that are so difficult that if we tried our very best, we'd always fall short and be unable to do what pleases him because a godly life is possible. Listen to what Jesus told a group of Jews one day as they gathered around him and he had just finished preaching. He says, come unto me all you that lay And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, You can do this, and we can. A godly life is possible, and God wants every Christian in the world to accept and embrace this truth. You just start reading in the Old Testament and even people before Jesus ever came and before Jesus ever died, they lived godly lives. And when the Holy Spirit speaks about their life, he says, hey, these people got it right and they pleased God and they did what God wanted them to do. These all died in faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. Now, just start thinking about some of the people of whom that's true. Genesis 5, 24 says, Enoch, he walked with God. Hebrews 11:5 5 says, and before he went to heaven, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Noah, Genesis 6 and verse 9, was blameless, upright in his generation. And Noah, he pleased God. It says about Elizabeth and Zechariah, both husband and wife, Luke 1 and verse 6. They were upright, blameless in their generation, and fulfilled the statutes of the Lord their God. And even David in 1 Kings 3 and verse 6, good, upright, and lived a holy life before God because a godly life is possible. Now, if that was true for individuals in the old covenant, before Jesus had ever came and died and lived... Surely it's true of those of us for whom Jesus has died. We have the complete totality of God's revelation and God's grace poured out over our lives. We can do this. And God says we can. A godly life is possible. What God wants from us is not an impossible feat. I know Christianity isn't designed to be easy. The Bible calls it the straight and narrow way. But let us be careful not to make it harder than God. It's not the rigid and the impossible way. God says you can do it. A godly life is possible. Now, I know what we say sometimes. We say things like, well, I'm striving for perfection, but the reality is we're not. And the Bible doesn't tell you to strive for perfection. Listen, the first time we sin, we forfeited our opportunity to ever be perfect. And God's never called us to be. If you say, I want to get 100 on this test and you miss one problem, try as you might. You can get a 99.999. You can't be perfect. If you've ever gotten one ticket, you say, I want a perfect driving record. You get one ticket. You'll never have a perfect driving record. You've messed that up. You can have a good driving record, a faithful driving record, but perfect you can't be. And none of us can be. And God's not asking for the impossible from us. He's saying, I want you to live a godly life and you can go to first Thessalonians chapter four. Notice these two passages. If we don't get this right. We'll continue to talk about the fact that we're not perfect and maybe use that as a scapegoat from doing what God actually wants us to do. God's not calling for perfection. He's calling for persistence. I know Matthew 5:48 and these passages talk about completeness before God in totality, but sinful perfection is not our standard. 1 Thessalonians four and verse one, Paul says, even when we were with you, we taught you how you ought to walk and to please God. And notice this. Paul says, even as you also are doing, we want you to abound more and more. Were the Thessalonians pleasing God? Could they do it? Were they doing it? They were. And we can. Colossians one and verse 10, Paul says you can live a life that is completely pleasing to God. They were and we can. God says, I want you to accept this truth. You'll never be sinlessly perfect. But I've got good news for you. A godly life is possible. Some of you are in charge where you work. You hire other people. And if that's not true about you, you've applied for a job before and you've seen a job description. And employers typically want the same thing regardless of the field. They'll have the requirements to work at this job and they'll say they want you to be able to do the task, whatever the task is. They want you to know what it is that you're engaged in. They want you to be on time, prompt, consistent, dependable, a hard worker, give your best effort. No job ever says we want the perfect employee. That person doesn't exist. But you can be a faithful employee. Furthermore, you must be if you're going to remain gainfully employed. Can you be the perfect Christian? Can you always say what's right, do what's right, think what's right? No, you can't. Can you be faithful? Not only can we, we must, Matthew 10:22. He that endures till the end will be saved Matthew 10:22. And Jesus and he says I want you to accept this truth from my word. A godly life is not beyond your reach. It's not impossible to please God. You can do it. Because a godly life is possible. Now, here's number 4. It is finished. Jesus came to the world to do many things. He came to fulfill the law of Moses Matthew 5 and verse 17. He came to do the will of God and die for our sins, Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says he came to preach the gospel to the brokenhearted, to heal the wounds of those that have been bruised, to set at liberty the captives. And one of the seven things that Jesus says when he's on the cross dying for the sins of the world in John 19 and verse 30 is, it is finished. Now, many of you learned that in cradle roll. You already knew that was one of Jesus' statements. In fact, his very last one. But this is a truth that God wants us to accept. The work of Jesus on the cross really did atone for our sins, and that's it. Tim Keller says that the default setting of the human heart is to work out things in such a way that we maintain control of our own lives by constantly trying to earn our salvation. He says the default setting of the human heart is to work out things in such a way that we maintain control by trying to earn our salvation. So we say, I believe it's finished. It is. Jesus paid it all. We sing those songs and yet we find ourselves doing a thousand things in a hundred different ways that maybe if we work it out in such a way, we'll work hard enough and do enough that we can stand before God justified and assured of glory. And that surely he'll give it to us because we've done so much. And in a sense, he'll owe it to us. Paul says to the one that tries to achieve salvation by work, it puts God into your debt. But God will never be in our debt because he paid ours. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Jesus says it's finished. This does not mean and don't take this to mean that There's nothing that Christians have to do. But do take this to mean that what Jesus did on the cross is unique to what he'll ever call for us to do. Jesus fulfilled the law and paid the debt of our sins and we can never top him or one up him. Listen to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 7 and verse 27. He says, Jesus is not like those Old Testament priests who daily have to offer up sins first for their own, then for the people. This he did once for all when he died for sins. Hebrews 9:28. Christ offered up himself once. And to those that look for him, he'll appear for a second time without sin unto salvation. What a relief. But only if we're courageous enough to accept it. God says, you've got to accept this truth from me. What Jesus did for you, it is finished. This truth sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader or founder in the world. Every other religion has a God that's saying, hey, if you do enough, I can show you the way to live a godly life. If you work hard enough, I'll show you the pathway. We're all standing at the foot of righteousness mountain. And every other religious teacher is saying, hey, if you work hard enough, you can follow me to the top. Only Jesus comes down and says, I bring the mountain down to you. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't just see Jesus performing for us. Jesus is performing as us. Jesus dies not only so our debt is paid, but all of a sudden we have all of these credits of righteousness in our account that we didn't put there. Paul says, I wouldn't want to stand before God in my own righteousness, which is by the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3 and verse 9, accept it, embrace it. There's work for us to do, but Jesus really did pay it all. I want to show you the contrast between Jesus and other religious leaders. Here's Buddha's last words to his followers in his book. He says, strive unceasingly. Do more. Try harder. Jesus's last words, it's finished. I'm telling you, he's different. Every other religious leader says, if you work hard enough, if you do enough, Jesus is the only religious leader that says, I've really already done it. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And God says, I want you to accept it. Not so that you become lazy, but so that you'll work for me in view of the fact that you can't earn it, but that Jesus already has. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. No wonder Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul really believed it was finished. And until we do, we won't serve God like we should. Here's the next one. Good Christians struggle, too. God wants us to accept this truth that good Christians struggle just as much as anybody else. Now, I want you to don't write for a minute. Just think about this and don't tell me the answer out loud. But who's the strongest Christian, you know, I mean, now, wait a minute, the strongest. I mean, the person that knows the Bible the best, the most prayerful, the most balanced, the most compassionate Christian, you know, The most servant hearted, I mean the very best. Maybe they're not even living right now. Maybe it was your mom or dad or grandparent. You say, now this person, when I think Christianity, this person is the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. Do you have your person in mind? I think it's great for us to have flesh and blood examples of what true righteousness looks like. I would argue the Bible commands it, Philippians 3.17. Mark those who are walking right as we have for an example. But here's what I want us to appreciate. Whoever you have in mind and whoever I have in mind, even they struggled mightily and still do. I mean, they struggle with sin, with disappointment, with doubt, with discouragement, with their own human failings. They struggle just like you. First John one, John includes himself. Listen to John in first John one and verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Even John. First John one and verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Would you call God a liar? If you don't accept this truth that good Christians struggle too, you impeach God's righteousness and call God a liar. John says, even good Christians sin and commit sin after having been baptized and we need to accept this. Turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and in this chapter Paul's talking about some of the things that he Silas And Timothy had experienced, and he wants the Corinthians to know about it. Now, what's interesting about the verse we're about to read in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8 is that Acts tells us nothing about this. Paul just gives us a window into his private life that's not recorded anywhere else in the New Testament. And here's what he says in verse 8. When we were in Asia, we were pressed beyond measure, so much so that we despaired of life itself. We've got no idea what happened to Paul in Asia, but here's what we know. He was so discouraged that Paul just thought he'd give up and throw in the towel. He and the rest of his companions. Paul says we despaired of life itself. Life's not worth living. We might as well give up. But he didn't throw in the towel. Verse nine says we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we shouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. But even Paul is faithful and courageous as he was. He struggled. And I don't care how much Bible you read. I don't care how many spiritual, how many religious services you attend. Until your life comes to an end or Jesus comes again, we will struggle. Listen to Paul. When I wanted to do good, evil was always present at hand. Romans 7, 21. This is not an excuse to live an ungodly life. We've already talked about that, but it is to embrace this reality. You're not a bad Christian because you struggle. You're a human being and you'll never escape this reality. Malcolm Gladwell has added his voice to a chorus of voices before him that said you ought to live by the 10,000 hour rule. In his book with the subtitle, Success Stories, Gladwell says, geniuses aren't born, they're made. He says, if you put 10,000 hours into anything, you can become an expert. You can become the best. If you work hard enough, if you get in your hours, he says, you're never going to be your best, whatever your vocation is, whatever your hobby is. He says, once you put in 10,000 hours, you'll hit a new level and you'll be able to be an expert, a genius, the greatest. Anybody that's great, Gladwell says they put in 10,000 hours. And I think that's great. The good news is... If you keep working at Christianity and spirituality, you can grow. Every one of us can. But the reality is, if you put in 20,000 hours, you will still be a fellow passenger on the struggle bus with the rest of us. And you're never going to graduate from that. Every one of us is going to struggle because that's what Christians do. Even good Christians. Think about Peter. Is Peter a good Christian? He's one of the 12. He's in the inner three. Now, we know about all of his failings in the gospel. But after Pentecost, isn't he a beacon of light? This is what he said in the first sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.21. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 3,000 people got baptized, but there's more. He was the first person to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Acts 10, he goes to Cornelius' household, and he says, can anybody forbid water that these shouldn't be baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we have, and they did. He defended his decision in Acts chapter 11. But Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, one day, Some Jews came down from Antioch with James and Paul all of a sudden withdrew from these Gentiles and acted like he didn't know them and they were unacceptable. Didn't Peter know that the Gentiles were in? Yes, he preached the sermon. Was he struggling with some sort of Jewish prejudice? I don't believe so. Paul rebuked him and it was right. But what it shows us is this, that even Peter, who knew better, who said everybody can be saved, even Gentiles. He was a human being and peer pressure got the best of Peter. He saw all of these other people doing the same thing. And even Peter had feet of clay because good Christians, godly Christians, zealous, Jesus loving, Bible toting scripture quoting Christians, even they struggle. And you will, too. You're not immune to it. And neither am I. And God says, you're going to serve me better. When you accept this reality that you don't throw in the towel because you sinned this week or because you blew it really big. You're in a long line of other people who are trying to serve me as best they can, but just struggling in the flesh. Here's the next one. Number six, you can't do it all. One of the truths that God wants us to accept is that we can't do everything. We talk about multitasking and we've got split screens and we've got different devices that do different things. And maybe we've learned how to do a lot of things, pretty average, but not one thing really good. By my nightstand, I've got a a stack of books. There's always a stack there and I'm always rotating through these. books. Brittany said, what are you doing with all those books? I said, I'm reading them, but not really. I mean, how many books can you read at a time? No matter how many you stack up. Everybody can only read one book at a time. You can really only do one thing really good at a time. I don't know all the things Mary did, but in Mark 14, here's what we know. She brings that alabaster box of spikenard, breaks it open, pours it on Jesus's head to anoint his body for burial. The people start complaining, the disciples of Jesus, and you remember what he says in verse 8, let her alone. She's anointed my body for burial. And then he adds this little statement, she has done what she could. I don't know all of what she could have done, but she could do that. And that's what she did. God wants you to accept this truth and me as well. You can't do everything. The fact that you're a finite human being is nothing to be ashamed about. It's how God made us. God doesn't expect us to do everything and to be everything to everybody. God says you've got to accept this truth. There is no way that you can do everything. Turn your Bible to Jeremiah 32. Once in Jeremiah 32, this is a statement, but in another place in Jeremiah 32, it's a question. So the first time in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, it's a statement. Where God says, or Jeremiah says about God, you are the Lord God and there is nothing too hard for you. But notice verse 27, Jeremiah 32, 27. And here's where God is saying this to the people. He says, I'm going to bring you back from Babylonian captivity, reestablish you as my people and bless you greatly. But Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, he says, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? What's the answer to that question? Is there anything too hard for God? Shake or nod? No. Now, let's ask it another way. Is there anything too hard for you? Yes. And if you say no, you make God a liar. The only person that should be able to say yes about this question to themselves in Jeremiah 32, 27 is God almighty and only God. God wants us to accept the fact that we can't do everything. If you're a five talent man or woman, use your five talents. If you're two talents, use the two. If you're a one talent or even a half, God says that's all I'm requiring of you, and you can't do everything. And don't feel guilty because you can't. Paul doesn't give us any more explanation, but this in 1 Corinthians 16:12, he says it's not Apollos' will to come to Corinth at this time, but he'll come when he has opportunity. Hey, they want you, Apollos. They want you to come preach. Apollos says, I can't come right now and I'm not coming. Listen, sometimes we just have to say, no, I can't do it all. I can't do everything. I'm a finite person. And God wants us to embrace that. We are finite by design and don't defy his design. God wants you to accept it. God says, I'm God and you're not. There's only one being who's supposed to know everything who's supposed to be in on every conversation, who's responsible for helping everybody in the world, who's supposed to know everything about everybody's hardship, who can embrace all of the world's sorrows, who can know everything and has all of the power to solve everybody's problems. And God says, it is not you. And I will never call in for a sick day and ask you to replace me. God says, that's me and me alone. Isaiah 42 in verse 6, he says, I'm God and I won't give my glory to another. Isaiah 42 in verse 8. Isaiah 49 and verse six, he says, I am God and there's no other God beside me. And you and I need to embrace this and accept this reality. You can't be involved in every event. You can't do every work. You can't visit all the sick people and do all the Bible studies and neither can I. And God says, Hiram, I need you to accept this truth. It will crack your soul if you try to do this, because what you're trying to do when you just think about it is you're trying to be God. You can't feed all the homeless people. You can't support all the missionaries. God says you've got to accept your finite nature. Don't be ashamed of it, but instead embrace it and do the few things that you can do as well as you can do those things to the good and glory of God. This is by far not an excuse to be lazy, but it's a reminder that you and I are not sovereign. Here's the final one tonight. Number seven truths that God wants us to accept. Here's the last one. God is able to make you stand. There are these doxologies at the end of most of the New Testament books, these praise statements where these authors break out in praise toward God. And as it was read for us a moment ago, Jude 24 is one of those. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And he says God can do this in verse 25 because he has dominion, majesty, power, and might both now and forever. Amen. Chase on Wednesday night and his Devo was talking about 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. And in 1 Peter 5, 10, God says, after you've suffered a little while, I myself. God's not going to send somebody else to do this. He says, I myself will strengthen, confirm, establish and settle you. He'll make us stand through the gospel. Romans 16 and verse 25. God says, I want you to accept this truth. Accept this. Just like we rejected the devil's lies this morning. God says, accept this truth from me. I'm able to make you stand. And we might have this backwards. We might think, hey, I'm standing up pretty good because I read the Bible every day and you should. But that doesn't make you stand. Not in and of itself. Hey, I pray like nobody. Hey, nobody prays as much as I pray. God says, if you see anybody standing in the faith, if you see anybody on their best behavior and standing in righteousness, unmoved, it's because God makes them stand. In Romans 14, Paul is dealing with these matters of judgment where people have differences of opinion. And he says, hey, if somebody has a different view than you do in these areas of judgment, so be it. And then in Romans 14 and verse 4, he says, by the way, to his own master, he stands and falls. God's able to make him stand. Nobody has to answer to you and they don't have to answer to me. They answer to God and God's able to hold up everybody who calls on him in obedient faith through Jesus Christ. And this is a truth that Christians need to accept. God alone is able to uphold us and make us stand in Him, and we can trust in Him and rely on Him as a result. It's in the 1800s when kickstands first were invented, and you know a kickstand is designed to hold up a bike. When they first came out, they were very long rods that were in the front connected to the handlebars, but we've gotten a little bit better than that, and we hide them along the side of the bike. The kickstand is designed to keep the bike from falling over to keep the bike steady as you leave it there in its own position. And Jesus serves as the spiritual kickstand for every Christian. Read the Bible, pray, worship, serve. But remember, in the end, one day we'll stand before God. And the only thing that will keep us from crumbling in that day is the fact that Jesus alone is the one that exalts us, holds us up and makes us stand. He's able to do it. He's glad to do it. He delights to do it. And he says, I want you to let me do my work and accept this truth and embrace it because it's what I do for you as my people. There are a lot of ways we could describe God, but one of the ways that he's described, Isaiah 65 and verse 16, is he's a God of truth. There are lies the devil wants us to believe, and if we believe them, they'll sink our souls. But then there are truths that God wants us to accept, and until we embrace them, we won't soar to the spiritual heights he has planned for us. We're going to ask a question that we asked at the beginning of this lesson. Would you call God a liar? I mean, would you say it to his face? Hey, you said that, but you're not a God of truth. You're a liar. When God says, I like you, do you say, well, not me? I don't like the way I look. I don't like my weight. I don't like my physical appearance. My teeth might be kind of crooked. God doesn't like me. I don't always do it right. God says, I delight in you. Would you call God a liar? God says, hey, you can't do everything. Did you say, hey, watch me. I can prove you wrong. God, I know you said you're the only one, but I'm right up there with you. You and I can come in about a tie. I can do about as much as you can do. Would you call God a liar? When Jesus says it's finished. Do you really think that we can do even one work that would put God in our debt to where we could finally stand before Him and say, okay, give me eternity, give me heaven. I've earned it. He is a God of truth, and everything He says in His Word is truth. And maybe these seven are some of the hardest for us to accept. Jesus says, I won't just simply show you the way of the truth. John 14, 6, He says, You're looking at truth dressed up in flesh and bones. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you accept Him, You accept his truth. If you're not a Christian, the truth that you currently reject is the one your heart needs the most. Jesus is the Son of God. He is not deceiving us. He's exactly who he said he is. If you believe that, you can turn from sin and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just like the Bible says, because it really is finished. He really paid the debt. And all of his righteousness will be added to your account. You'll rise to walk in newness of life and do what God would have you to do. Do what you can to serve and glorify God. Maybe you've done that. You need the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to pray with you, pray for you. If you need to come and respond, come and do so now as we stand and as we sing.